You're listening to a Columbia Journalism Review podcast. On this episode, a conversation between Deputy Editor Clint Hendler and Linnell Hancock, who directs the Spencer Fellowship for Education Journalism at Columbia University. She is the author of the cover story of the March-April issue called Tested, Covering Schools in the Age of Micromeasurement, which you can read now on the Columbia Journalism Review website, cjr.org. Here's Clint and Linnell. Hi, Linnell. Thanks so much for coming in. It's my pleasure. You wrote uh, for our most recent issue a big piece about the debate about how to um, use value-added metrics uh, in education reporting. Um, Could you briefly describe what value-added metrics are? Value-added metrics is a sort of complicated uh, statistical analysis that um, claims to measure the effectiveness of public school teachers. It's based on standardized tests, which are only given to uh, math and reading, uh, in math and reading subjects, so only math and reading teachers are evaluated by them. And they look at progress, not just the static score. So in New York City, for example, they take three years' worth of standardized tests that an individual child has taken, and then they match those scores to the teacher that they had. They do a lot of very complicated algorithms, and they come up with an estimate that estimates how effective that teacher is. At the end of the day, the, um, the value-added metric measures the ranking of the teacher as either a f- very effective, moderately effective, or not effective at all. And the issue in Los Angeles was that they printed these rankings next to teachers' names. And in New York City, the Department of Education would also like to release these scores and are willing to let newspapers print them as well with teachers' names. So let's talk about Los Angeles for a second. The Los Angeles Times had a major series uh, where they went and actually designed their own way to make this number. Uh, They got some raw data from the uh, Los Angeles School District, and then they uh, found a way of sorting out the teachers that were represented by this data into various effectiveness quality, uh, categories. Shortly before this uh, piece went to press, there was actually a study that came out from the University of Colorado that was quite critical of um, the system that the Los Angeles Times had put together. Could you talk about uh, what that study showed and how it challenged some of the Los Angeles Times' assumptions about the quality of their numbers? Right. Um, I, you should also say that the Los Angeles Times hired an economist who was expert in this, who developed their series, so they didn't do it on their own. Okay. But um, the Colorado study added a few more variables to the analysis. They added a few things like demographics of the school, which the original analysis didn't do. So in other words, they would look at uh, whether the school was in a high poverty area, in a low poverty area, what the ethnic makeup of the kids were, and so on. They also looked at issues like tracking. So some kids, of course, are tracked into high-performing classes, and some are in low-performing classes, and does that affect the final ranking of the score? So these were sort of inside school factors that the original analysis didn't look at. And the end results were pretty dramatic. They found lots of wild changes in the scores just by adding a few other calculations. So you could argue that the scores uh, are so fragile that if you just add a few 
more variables, they might change radically. So in the end, it questions what does this really measure? Right, because the whole, the whole contention behind the value-added metrics is that they found a way to measure just the teacher's effect on the student that right. controls for all of these other factors that are things that a teacher, no matter how good they are, can't change in the classroom. Right. Uh, so in Colorado, they thought they found a way to make a better control, and that ended up making the data from the Los Angeles Times look very different. Right. So it raises a great question about the quality of these data sets all across the country, including those in New York, and how accurately they are actually at measuring what they purport to measure. Right. So in New York City, um, what uh, and this is sort of the central narrative of your piece, what has happened is that despite um, being sort of lethargic in responding to most um, open records requests, the Department of Education, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, made some hints to some reporters that this data could be pretty quickly forthcoming this time, which wouldn't be how it had been in the past, right. that it might include some teachers' names. And uh, the reporters uh, dutifully filed those um, open records requests, and then all of a sudden were faced with this great conundrum of what to do when the, the data actually came out. Right now, uh, the data has not still yet come out, right? It's, it's tied up in court? Right. It's still on appeal, so it's still in court. So who is arguing that the data should come out, and who's arguing that it shouldn't? Well, the Department of Education is arguing that it should come out. So here you have a government agency arguing that a FOIA request must be fulfilled. Right. Okay. Uh, the United Federation of Teachers is arguing that it should not come out. And the newspaper's lawyers, they have all, uh, they have one lawyer, is arguing that they should come out. And the reporters are mixed about what to do with it when they do come out. But they're, it's pretty much out of their hands at this point. Um, in most of the larger news organizations, the, uh, the editors are deciding what's going to happen. Right. So you start your piece by saying that uh, this influx of new data uh, into the newsrooms, uh, the major newsrooms in New York, has the potential to actually diminish the, the quality of the conversation around education. Um, you know, just on its face, that's a little bit of an unusual contention for a journalist to make. You know, who right. are the people usually filing requests for this kind of information? So, what are you and other experts and education reporters who are going to be confronted with accurately reporting and uh, this information so concerned about? It is an unusual conundrum to be in. We're usually in the business of begging for data from departments of education and public institutions and, um, and printing whatever we have in a responsible way. But that's the key here. What is responsible? And the odd, awkward situation now where the reporters are saying it's not responsible to just splash these numbers uh, across the pages without proper context, without showing what these numbers actually do say and what they don't say. And then attach names to them as well, which gives the numbers much more credence than a lot of people believe they deserve, including the people who have designed these systems. They don't believe they deserve this either. So there's political pressure that's really pushing for the numbers and the names. And reporters are being used as a wedge in the middle. In this case, uh, the Department of Education versus the United Federation of Teachers. This is a battle that's been framed by new forces of marketplace reformers. It's part of, of the reform effort for the last 25 years, but in recent years, and this was one of the main points of the piece, the new forces in education reform are private philanthropists, they're hedge fund managers, they're political lobbyists, who in just the last couple of years had poured a lot of political pressure and a lot of money 
into education reform, and they have a huge influence on it. And their particular agenda, I'm arguing, is quite narrow. It seems counterintuitive in a way. There seems to be a, a lot more urgency, a lot more coverage of education. So you would think that the conversation is broad and robust, but in fact, what they are pushing, the agenda they're pushing, and what reporters are feeling sort of herded towards covering is quite narrow. And that agenda is very simply close schools, fire teachers, start charters, and pull public education sort of out of the public sphere. So, but what are the tools? I mean, how is this uh, conversation being shaped by, um, you, you name some of the big foundations, the big players in the beat, uh, the Gates Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation, the Broad Foundation. What are they doing that is capturing the education beat in the way that you're arguing it, it has happened? Well, they're listening, first of all, to economists instead of educators. So there's a divide between educators and economists now in ways that there never has been before. Uh, the philanthropists are pouring huge amounts of money into research for, in this case, teacher effectiveness. So they are starting pilots um, around the country looking at how to measure teacher effectiveness. And the tools are mostly statistical. Since they aren't listening to educators, there's very little attention paid to what actually is happening in the classrooms, issues of special needs kids, um, how poverty is affecting communities. All those are not considered valid in their view. They're much more attuned to incentives. They listen to behavioral psychologists, which is what economists are all about. So they really believe that people respond to incentives first, and they eliminate everything else. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a world that is, in a lot of ways, an anathema to the teachers and actually in the classroom. And they, um, they're feeling beleaguered by all of these measures. So it makes a lot of sense for the economists and the philanthropists to look for a way to measure effective teachers so they can have a basis for firing the worst in a so-called objective way. And what a lot of the reporters and other educators are seeing is, how is this objective exactly? These numbers, you seem to worship them more than really look at them analytically. So what do you see um, methods of measuring teacher quality that are less dependent on value-added statistics? You can look at several places in the United States to find places where they're measuring teachers effectively. And it's, guess what, more complicated than uh, statistical measure. It's closer to what we call portfolio assessments of children, right? So you can look, uh, look in a place uh, like Maryland uh, or Scarsdale, New York, where for about 10 or 15 years, the school system has been dedicated to creating a sort of peer assessments of teachers. They have brought in professional development that works and matters. And in, ironically enough, in Maryland, you'll see uh, it's been in place for about 10 years in parts of Maryland. The teachers themselves who are evaluating each other tend to counsel out ineffective teachers at higher rates than districts do with numbers. So it's more effective. It's harder to do. But it's based on teachers evaluating other teachers, so educators knowing what they're talking about. It does work, um, and it doesn't have an objective measure accompanying it 
Um, it could, perhaps they could use maybe 3% of the evaluation of a teacher could be standardized test. But what the, uh, the new marketplace folks, as well as the Obama administration, is saying these, these objective measures should be 50% of what a teacher, teacher's effectiveness should be, which most people feel is just way too much. Well, thank you very much, Linnell, for joining us, and thanks for your mm-hmm. great article. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, thank you. This has been a Columbia Journalism Review podcast, produced by Lauren Kirchner. Theme music by Tim Hoyt. Visit cjr.org for fresh media criticism and behind-the-scenes stories every day, and to subscribe to the prize-winning magazine now in its 50th year, the Columbia Journalism Review at cjr.org. Strong press, strong democracy.